Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Naz Modirzadeh, and this is Hold Your Fire. Richard, welcome and uh, looking forward to this conversation today. Hi, Naz. Great to be here. And I'm also very excited that we've got uh, Comfort Eero with us. Comfort is Crisis Group's long-serving Africa director, but she's now standing in as Crisis Group's interim vice president, which is fantastic news. Comfort, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Welcome to all of you as well. So we're going to talk about Africa in 2021. What are the continent's biggest security challenges? We'll talk about some continent-wide trends, and then we'll look, also look at some of its most worrying, most dangerous crises. But before we do that, maybe let me just say a word or two about Rob Malley, who, as everyone knows, used to host the podcast. I think probably everybody knows that he's now gone into the Biden administration as the president's Iran envoy. Obviously, we're very sad to lose a wonderful friend, colleague, and, and boss, Rob has been around Crisis Group for a long time. He was our Middle East director for more than a decade. He then served in the Obama administration. Then he came back as, as president. And I think really he can be very proud of, of his past few years at the helm of Crisis Group. Obviously, I'm partisan, uh, but I think we've really done some great work under his leadership. Our regional program work that we're best known for has gone from strength to strength. But we've also done some really important new thematic work on climate and conflict, on tech, on economics and conflict. And uh, really, Rob, we'll miss you, your formidable intellect, uh, your charm, your eloquence, your empathy, and always pushing us to put ourselves in the shoes of people we disagree with, which is, of course, so important for conflict resolution. I think it's hard to think of a better person for President Biden's Iran envoy. If you're listening, Rob, we'll keep the show in good hands. And obviously, if we disagree with the course the Biden administration is charting on Iran, we'll be quick to point that out, too. (laughs) 
So, Comfort, we're going to try and have a wide-ranging discussion on peace and security in Africa over the course of the next year, uh, and we'll zoom in on some of the continent's crises. But I, I was hoping that we could start with you briefly setting the scene. What are some of the trends that we should be looking out for in Africa over the coming year? I mean, I think the evolving role of international actors um, will be crucial. Also, I think we remain concerned about the rise in jihadi threats, the Sahel being at the centre of that, but the Lake Chad Basin, we're now in the 11th year of the Boko Haram insurgency, which has morphed. You know, Nigeria remains um, very unstable in, in its north, but also Cameroon and Chad and the region continue to, to suffer the backlash from, from Boko Haram. And then tied to that, you know, as we're going into the very sort of tense elections in Somalia, al-Shabaab has become more emboldened than ever. And then we're seeing the emergence of a new sort of jihadi insurgency, local insurgency in Mozambique. Richard, you know, you and I had a back and forth as to whether to bring Mozambique into any of our lists, you know, and, and we saw the compelling reason. But in keeping with our methodology of not bringing in new countries until we've done a rigorous reporting on it, we're left it off. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it should be um, a key consideration for the Africa Union and particularly for the region um, this year. So even though it's not on our list and our list is never, you know, exclusive, um, it, it's certainly one that is absent from all the various top issues that we're going to address this year. And of course, I guess one last trend to think about, an old-time classic for, for all of us that, that watch Africa, is elections you know, and transitions. And of course, we kicked off the new year with very um, tense elections in Uganda. And I think a real test case for the presidency, uh, Museveni. And I think also a reminder to all of us um, who watch development on the continent that the generational divide was certainly on a spotlight in Uganda when Bobby Vine really did take um, Museveni and question his own legitimacy going forward in Uganda. So, you know, that's an all-time classic that we're going to be watching across the continent this year. Very good. Comfort, can I pick up on something that you mentioned right at the beginning of that and, and this idea of sort of, of international actors' involvement in, in Africa? It seems sort of globally and, and also in Africa that we're in this period of geopolitical flux, that traditional powers, obviously Europe is still very important in Africa, for the US, let's see what happens under President Biden. But China is obviously now enormously influential. Russia is increasingly present. Uh, the Gulf monarchies, Turkey, also exporting their rivalry into parts of the continent. Not just that, but you also have in Africa itself. I mean, you know, if you look back on a, a few years ago, there used to be what people called the sort of the, the big men or the big countries, South Africa, Nigeria, Egypt, Libya. And most of those are sort of engulfed now by different forms of crises. And instead, you have now many other countries and many other leaders that are influential, uh, Rwanda, Uganda, Chad, uh, President Deby, uh, sort of playing this counterterrorism role across the continent. So there seems to be a lot of flux, not only sort of broader geopolitically in the world, but also in, in terms of African geopolitics. Is that right? And, and sort of what does that mean for some of the crises on the continent? Yeah, I mean, thanks for raising that question, Richard. I mean, we tend to focus a lot on the, the role of international actors and their intervention on the continent. And you'll recall that in a, in one of the Horn podcasts that I did, I, I said that what I found equally controversial was the role of African powers in some of these crises that we have on the continent. I mean, more and more, as I've often said, a lot of Africa's crises, their fate of a lot of these crises are often determined and shaped in a number of key African capitals. One good example is the Great Lakes region and the Eastern DRC. 
and the fate of that crisis there has often been determined, shaped, and you know through Kigali, through Kampala, and also other countries in the region. In the Horn of Africa, for example, you're right to point to the great power contest between the U.S. and China on one hand, and also the Gulf countries seeking rare bases to shore up their own um, defences and alliances to deal with their own concerns back in the Gulf region. But I think that the contest between Africa's great powers is really a compelling, it's a really interesting one, and it often, I think, one that, that is not often understood. Um, for example, Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt have a real sort of tense uh, negotiations over the future of the Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. We also have the spillover, the internalisation of an internal conflict in, in Ethiopia, not just about internal Ethiopia stability, but also about relationships between Eritrea and Sudan on the one hand, Sudan and Ethiopia on the other hand, um, Egypt and, and Ethiopia on the other hand. And then you have in the Sahel, the Sahel region, you know, you, you have the creation of the G5 Sahel forces, um, very different views by all those five countries as to what the cause of crisis is and to how to respond to those crises, which partly also explains why the G5 has limped along for the last few years as well. So I often feel that it's important to understand the power dynamics, the relationship between African great powers, and also how that sort of layers over international mediation and the forum shopping that that also generates. So South Sudan, for example, you know, when it suits, it works within IGAD, um, when it feels frustrated, sidelines IGAD and finds another way out into which to deal with its own crises as well. So I'm glad you, you raised that, that issue about the geopolitics of, of the region and understanding African intra-diplomacy going, going forward. Comfort, I want to commend to our readers a publication they just released uh, hot off the presses today when we're recording the eight priorities for the African Union in 2021. And it, it makes me think of what you're saying, that there is this need perhaps for the AU to assert a, a bit more clarity and coherence around the approach intra-African uh, diplomacy and, and leadership in the region. I know both Richard and I are wanting to talk more and ask you more about the Sahel, but before we do that, can I ask you to say a bit more about the overarching trends you're seeing with jihadism on the continent? So you said at the beginning, I, I thought pretty strikingly that 2020, in a way, was one of the worst years for this issue. I don't think that's really been a conversation that's been occurring outside of the region. I don't think there is a sense of the uh, upsurge of both al-Shabaab and other groups in terms of how we're thinking about jihadism in Africa. What is your sense of what you're seeing in terms of overarching trends regarding jihadi groups on the continent? Does it remain a model of connection to groups in the Middle East, or are we seeing the jihadi groups kind of developing more a regional and domestic agendas for, for what they're seeking to achieve through through violence and other means? I mean, Richard knows this very well because, you know, the, the, the foundation for a lot of our thinking was his own sort of seminal piece on exploiting um, um, local disorder. And a lot of these groups, their heartbeat, their reason for existence, the way in which they came about was very much through a very localised story. 
um, based on local grievances, based on a real divide between the centre and periphery. But yes, there is that regional connection. Yes, there is that transnational connection. They've also learnt a lot from various other jihadi groups. You know, so when the ISWAP, the Islamic State for West Africa, sort of stamped its flag in northern Nigeria in the Lake Chad Basin, you know, it couched its identity it couched its profile very much within the framework of the Islamic State as well. Mm. And much of the rhetoric, much of the video imagery, much of that sort of media work that you see by these various groupings in the region are very much to mimic the Islamic State. But can I go back to the one important point that you made as to, to why these groups exist and, and the reason why they, they still exist and also the international response to them? I mean, I think, you know, what we've seen successively in Naz in the last in the last year or so is this successive attacks by various jihadi groups as well. That what they've been successful at doing is they've been able to respond, adapt, change and pivot despite the degree of international pressure, whether that pressure is coming through the form of the the regional joint G5 force, whether it's the form of the UN or whether in the form of, of French intervention. And after seven, eight years of intervention, one has to ask that crucial question is that why haven't we seen any significant change on the ground? And it's for that reason that we decided to come out with a new report um, that came out this week calling for a course correction um, in the Sahel, saying that the use of, of military force, while justified in certain circumstances, needs to be located in a more comprehensive political strategy, one that focuses on governance, one that focuses on the local grievances, one that prevents further intercommunal violence, the kind that we're seeing in the region, and one that really responds to the heart of the matter, governance, governance, governance. And we emphasise that, whether it's in Mali, whether it's in Burkina, whether it's in Niger, and it's exactly the same thing in the Lake Chad Basin, the real distance between the centre and the periphery, and you're seeing the classic situation happening in, in, in Mozambique. These are all different contexts, these are all different countries, but when you look closer, you begin to realise it's the same fault lines, it's the same problems. The distance between the centre and the periphery, the tensions between government and the local communities, the failure to ensure basic services to important rural areas, the failure to deal with bed and butter issues, the failure to deal deal with livelihoods. And, And the response by government is to treat these as local extremist jihadist groups, to treat them as though they're foreign elements and not to connect and understand what is at the heart of the matter in all of these countries as well. And this is also happening as in the context now of a new problem, a new phenomena in the name of COVID-19 as well. Mm. Yeah, it's really such uh, such important points. You know, I mean, it was interesting. I was struck comfort with some of what you said and also Naz in your question. I mean, the question of sort of how much groups are local and, and the question of their ties to then groups in the Middle East whether it's sort of ISIS core or Al-Qaeda. And one of our experts on Boko Haram published this really great piece where he was able to interview a number of Boko Haram defectors. And the picture that they portrayed, I think, is really enlightening. I mean, Boko Haram is not necessarily typical, but I think it does show something about the balance between sort of transnational and local. And it was clear that Boko Haram got a lot of support from ISIS core, uh, particularly when ISIS was very strong in, uh, you know, in control of this territory in, in Iraq and Syria, that it sent advisors that were embedded in Boko Haram, that it advised on some of Boko Haram's tactics or one of the splinters of Boko Haram's tactics 
to the degree that the splinter sort of moderated some of its abuses of the civilian population, tried to focus on, on governance, became much more effective militarily. So it was clear that the international advice had helped the movement become more dangerous to the Nigerian state, more dangerous to the states around Lake Chad. But it was not clear that that international advice had really changed the identity of the movement. Boko Haram remained, or this splinter that we're talking about, remained very, very locally focused. In the end, the fighters were locally motivated. It wasn't that because they were advised by ISIS, they were then suddenly plotting international attacks. They stayed very, very focused on what they were doing in Lake Chad. So although it's important not to underestimate the the transnational connections and the advice or the sort of support that that can bring... It's also important to keep the idea that the, these groups in the end are locally focused, that they're focused on fighting local wars. Come for one follow up on that, just building on what Richard said, is there a sense, and of course you importantly point out that we shouldn't be a kind of sloppy in comparing groups across different countries with their own individual context, but insofar as we're looking at this as a trend across a number of countries, are these groups presenting themselves as alternative means for governance? Are they trying to show that they can do the work of governance? Yeah. And and I think this is the heart of the matter. In a sense, you can call them proto, proto-states or pseudo-states. And why do we say that? Because oftentimes they can offer basic services. They can offer some kind of rule of law, although I would question that kind of rule of law. They can offer an alternative. Oftentimes you'll find that citizens, local populations, um, have abdicated from the state. They no longer see the state as relevant to them. I take, for example, in, in Nigeria, where one's survival is no longer dependent on, on state resources, but very much dependent on your, your relationship with a, with a jihadi group um, for access to food, for access to health, for access to, to school. You'd also see this in, in Mali and you'll also see this in, in Burkina. And, you know, the research that we're seeing also in, in Mozambique is beginning to show that, that these are entities that become mirror images of the state in a very worrying way and, and therefore shows that the regime suffers from serious legitimacy. But it's also, I think, the foundation for why we saw the coup emerge when it did in Mali. And I think it was a wake-up call for the rest of the region that if the states did not deal with the local conditions and the causes of conflict that you'll see very quickly um, those governments will be dislodged. And this is not to justify that, but it's a warning um, to states about their own integrity going forward. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Comfort Aero. But can I, we should start talking about some of the conflicts themselves as well uh, in a moment, but can I just ask one sort of broader thematic question, uh, again, picking up on something that you said at the beginning, um, and that's about these transitions, the sort of broader idea of transitions and, and elections. And you mentioned the election in Uganda, the sort of crackdown on the opposition there. If you look at sort of one of the big divisions at the moment in Western politics, and it's particularly been exacerbated by the COVID crisis, it's generational. You know, COVID policies in particular in the West have aimed at protecting the most vulnerable, and many of those are old people. But the cost for young people of some of those COVID policies has been very, very high. Schools closed, isolated from friends. And it's easy to see the risk that this, you know, in the future could fuel a generational divide in Western societies that's already there. You know, it's already playing out in politics. In Africa, as you say, or you've implied, young people have led revolutions on the continent. Sudan was a revolution led in part by young people. Protests in other places have seen young people take to the streets. There seems to be this anger among younger people 
at a generation of leaders that are sort of refusing to step aside. How much is that an important part of understanding, you know, some of the, the challenges around transitions and, and elections and some of the upset that these have caused? How much of it is generational politics? You know, when I look back at all the sort of watch lists that we've done, whether it's the 10 conflicts, whether it's the EU, whether it's the Africa priorities, we've never singled out um, youth protests um, or and the generational divide that you mentioned as, as, as something to watch. And the more I think about it, the more I think it does need to stand out. And you can put a collection of sort of case studies to, to suggest where youth have been influential in changing these things. I mean, as you know, Richard, the, the other one to add to your list is what we saw in Nigeria last year with the NSARS protest and how um, the youth were very much instrumental um, in that. I, I mean, in terms of what to watch, I would keep an eye on youthful protest. They have access to technology using multiple devices to get their message out. Um, when you're looking for how to seek change, when you're looking for how to, to pursue democratisation, when you're looking for, for how to deal with political transformation, more and more we see very youthful activists. The symbol this year, I think, of that youthful protest is Bobby Vine in Uganda. I think he sent out a very important message. You may not have dislodged me right now. Maybe the, I may not have been able to dislodge you right now, but I have laid down a marker and an important marker and an important message to other leaders in the continent that just because we couldn't get rid of you today, it doesn't mean that we haven't sent you a warning shot. And in a region like the Horn of Africa, um, where we saw what happened in Sudan and when we saw what happened in, in Ethiopia, the story is not over in, in Uganda. And we say that also in Nigeria. I think a number of the younger population took their cue from what happened last year with the NSARS, you know, and are now innovating around um, significant political movements to, to stake a claim for the elections that happen in the next few years as well. And also, when you talk about the, the COVID-19, let me attach one concern that the youthful populations do have um, in relation to the fallout from the COVID-19, and it's around the debt um, issue. A number of countries, you know, stacking up more and more debt, you know, and mortgaging the future of a young, number of young people who now will have to pay the price for the huge debt that their countries are also um, suffering from. There's a need to deal with the economic um, fallout from COVID, but there's also a clear heavy price that Africa's youth will play into the future for this debt that is gathering a, a pace on the continent. Comfort, I want to move into a few more specific country contexts uh, that we wanted to highlight and, and get your views on during this conversation. And I think one of the most important and a topic of an early uh, podcast that, that Rob and I did is the situation in Ethiopia, um, mm -hmm. which I think you mark as, as one of the most uh, critical conflicts in 2021. Can you tell us a bit about the context and what you see as, as crucial to understand and act on this year? I mean, I think, you know, when William spoke to you then, the, the conflict hadn't started in, in Tigray, but he had been warning us and he had laid down, you know, the foundations and warning signs in classic crisis group prevention mode that, you know, that there are danger signs here that we need to, to watch out for. This contest between the old guard in the form of the, the TPLF and the newer leadership under Prime Minister Abiy. Um, fast forward, you know, today... Ethiopia is confronted by three major crises. First, of course, is the Tigrayan War and everything flows from that. Second is how we get the country and how Prime Minister Abiy gets the country to elections in, in June, whether that's realistic, given that a number of opposition groups 
some even his own home in Oromo have already um, questioned whether to go to elections. And tied to that is how he's going to deliver the grand renaissance stamp. And we've already talked about the regional geopolitics around that. It's very hard today to, to see what the way out is of the Tigray war, unless Prime Minister Abiy is urged, and if we're not able to convince him to adopt a more conciliatory approach towards his own opponents, given the polarised situation, it's not clear to me how we're going to be able to resolve the crisis there. Today, we have a large humanitarian um, catastrophe in the country. 50,000 refugees fled into Sudan. You've got 2.5 million internally displaced people from the Tigray region, and you've got thousands of people who have died. You've got ethnic targeting, you've got looting, you've got raping. This is a good time to ask this question of what are we going to be able to do to convince President Abiy to pull back, but also to also deal with the fragmentation um, that is looming in Ethiopia. The European Union is sending out its humanitarian negotiator in the form of the, the Finnish foreign minister to talk to Prime Minister Abiy. As you know, the European Union has suspended budget aid. And that is not an easy thing to do for the European Union to decide. So it shows you how, how grave the international community sees this crisis. So I think we have a tough road ahead in resolving the crisis. At the heart of the crisis is a dispute between the federal and ethnographic regional power in the country and how to unlock that and deal with the humanitarian crisis. But and also um, and ensure that we pull back Eritrea's own involvement is going to be crucial. If we don't fix these issues, we're likely to see a protracted crisis throughout the year. Yes, I mean, so, so important, as you say, given not just the terrible humanitarian situation or reportedly terrible humanitarian situation in Tigray, but also the importance of Ethiopia for the Horn. Comfort, could we talk about a, another you know, really pivotal country on the continent, the Democratic Republic of Congo? It's so important, right in the centre of the continent. I think it borders nine, eight, nine countries. Uh, Felix Chisikedi is president after years in opposition. I think he's even the son of an, an important opposition leader. He came to power in elections, what, two and a half years ago, three years ago. Uh, I think it's fair to say those were very problematic elections. Uh, Chisikedi won largely because he was backed by former president uh, Joseph Kabila, uh, to whom he really owes his position as president. And since then, there's been this sort of uneasy alliance between the two men, with Kabila exercising a lot of power behind the scenes. But it seems over the course of the past year, the sort of power dynamics between them uh, seem to have changed, or there's some signs of them changing. Chisikedi seems to be clipping his predecessor's wings. At the same time, uh, as we've reported on, things are really heating up in the east again with some of the regional politics that you talked about earlier. Chisikedi's sort of made trying to calm the, the conflict in the east and DRC uh, one of his signature policies. So what should we be watching for this year in the Congo, both in terms of politics in Kinshasa and also the risk of instability in the east? I think, and I, and I appreciate the way you explained also, you know, the, the efforts we've seen in the last year or so by President Felix Chisikide to try and consolidate power. In fact, and this is a, an important moment for him to have succeeded that because, as you know, he's going to be this year um, at the African Union Summit. He will take over the chairpersonship from President Ramaphosa and be sort of Africa's um, sort of spokesperson and leader for all things African on, on the continent this year. So this is an important moment that power is finally shifted properly into his own hands. The key question, Richard, that we're going to be looking out for is to see whether President Chisikese's 
efforts to consolidate power by pushing out former President Joseph Kabila and his supporters will pay off. And what does that mean in terms of political stability also is something that our colleagues will be watching for. And what does that mean, rightfully, um, in relation to the question you asked about security in Eastern Congo and making sure that he's able to deal with the one issue that he wants to deal with, which is to disarm and demobilise the various militia forces um, in Eastern Congo. And as you know, the East has also been sort of a stomping ground for regional rivalries between Uganda and Rwanda in Eastern Congo. I think the things we're watching this year, Richard, is whether President Chisikede can form a new parliament majority, which will in turn allow him to make ministerial and military appointments that will then allow him to sort of freely deal with some pressing issues um, around reform and governance and around security also. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Former President Joseph Kabila um, still looms large in the country and we shouldn't underestimate his own sort of ability to remain a nuisance factor and the possibility of a conflict between President Chisigedia and Joseph Kabila's camp is still very much probable and it will play out if it does in the eastern Congo as well. The other thing that we need to look out for is whether old habits will die hard in the region, um, in the country, corruption, patronage politics, um, siphon off of state funds in the country. That's a crucial issue. But as you said, how we deal with the fact that Eastern Congo becomes a basin for proxy conflict in the region becomes um, a, a key issue. And Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi um, have often seen or played out their own disputes in the centre of the country as well. I think the other thing, Richard, that we sort of need to watch out for and where I think the international community will need to support Congo if we're able to deal with these proxy wars is how they they support President Chisikidi in dealing with sort of community-based national development and demobilisation and reintegration plan if we're going to sort of push back um, against using Congolese armed groups and militias um, in this sort of political way for political ends as well and from political gains. Comfort, as you said, Chisikini will be, amongst other things, taking up this leadership role in the AU. And mm-hmm. I think one of the issues that you've raised really elegantly in this in this briefing is this question of the role of the AU in security policy generally, but particularly as to the role of the G5 in the Sahel. And I'm wondering... Mm-hmm. If you could speak a bit to the question of how the AU, what what is going on with the G5, uh, but also how can the AU kind of recapture African leadership on this issue that has significant regional and, and broader implications? You know, on Wednesday, we launched our AU report and, you know, um, as we've always done um, through through our colleagues and, and friends in, in Addis And one of the questions that came out of that conversation or one of the observations that came out of that conversation was the one thing that appears to be missing on the continent is leadership. There was a time when we we used to talk about the big five. There was a time we used to talk about some glorious area of of Africa diplomacy. There was a time when we talked about key sort of centres of power and lever. And when you don't have obvious sort of heads of states who are able to lead and shape and define what the Africa agenda should be or what the Africa response to it should be, that the second next best place to look for that tends to be or should be with the African Union Commission, um, which defines, shapes and sets the ag- agenda, and also the African Union Peace and Security Council. Look, this is going to be a tough year for the African Union, both its commission and its Peace and Security Council. Um, we are now reaching the sort of crescendo 
of the AU reform initiatives. One of those big initiatives is the merger, um, similar to what we saw at the United Nations, the merger of its political chamber with its peace and security sort of commission. And to get the, the AU to be more robust, more lean, um, more streamlined, more coherent and just more effective. Um, what are we looking for from the African Union this year? Of course, it's been sucked up by COVID-19 and rightfully so. It has to continue with that. It has to address the big fallout from the pandemic, but we need it to get back also to peace and security issues. You rightfully asked about the G5 NAS. My, my preoccupation, my concern is, yes, there is a problem about the G5, but I wonder whether the, the appropriate response from the African Union is to sort of decide to deploy further troops, um, Africa troops, into that re into the region. One of the issues that we raised with the African Union, both in the Sahel course correction report and also the priorities report, will it be a, a game changer? Will it transform the conflict dynamics on the ground? We have our doubts. It's already, as you know, to reuse the, the expression that we coined a few years ago, there's already a traffic jam um, in the region, you know, where, where there's a shortage of money and the, the AU doesn't have that much money, um, is the most efficient response uh, more, more boots on the ground? Or should it be sort of a, providing a political umbrella um, and sort of political guidance to deal with the crisis in the Sahel? And it's a question that we've posed to the African Union. We see the merit of wanting to respond to the crisis there, but I question whether this is the right approach. Comfort. Let me end with one Last question, and I apologise in advance. It's kind of a jaded question. It's a very well-worn question, but you know we've talked about it before. There is this sort of split on Africa between the economists who tend to be optimistic. I'm not sure if that's changed now with the pandemic, and the political scientists that tend to be pessimistic about the way the continent's uh, headed. Where do you sit on that debate, especially looking out on that year ahead? Are you more optimistic or are you more pessimistic? Um, I'm not, I don't think I'm either of them. But the one thing I, I would say is that, look, in all the crisis and the concerns that multilateralism was on its last legs under the Trump era, it never wavered on the continent. You know, multilateralism was very much alive on the continent in the form of the African Union and the regions. And, you know, as you know, the UN and the European Union see the continent as a vital partner. But I think with the emergence of the, the Biden administration and tied to that well-known, respected, um, seasoned diplomats, we will see or we hope to see sort of a more coherent strategic response from the, the US administration in terms of its own engagement with the continent, particularly at the African Union. We do have some delicate issues to deal with, particularly around financing um, Africa-led um, missions that are of international peace and security concerns. Um, I think the other issue tied to that um, is, as I said, sort of a reformed African Union defining for itself how it's going to deal with peace and security issues. One sort of key issue that, that we're looking to see greater sort of noise by the African Union, and they've already started that, is around climate change. And as you know, towards the end of this year, you know, COP26 um, will be a significant time for the African Union to sort of define what the what the common message is. I think what really troubles me this year, Richard, and it's a global phenomenon, but it also takes on a starker um, relief on the continent, is COVID. 
it's going to be a more difficult year this year for the continent. The second lockdown on the continent is going to be aggressive. When I listen to somebody like Vera Songwe, the UN um, head for the Economic Commission of Africa, you listen to her sort of economic um, projections for the continent, and then you layer that over the peace and security challenges. This is going to be a very difficult, very tough year for, for the continent. And the reason I emphasize this also is that there is concern on the continent about when the continent itself will benefit from vaccine and receiving the vaccine. So I think while we can talk about the optimism, um, the reality on the continent is if we don't deal with the vaccine and it getting in onto the continent and being distributed evenly, that we are we are going to see a, a very sort of um, grim, a grimmer look for the continent into 2021. Comfort, really, what a what a tour de force. That was fantastic. And I, I just say to listeners, I mean, if you were impressed, as as you should be with, with everything that Comfort said, all crisis groups work on Africa is, is on our website and you can find some of the briefings, including our AU priorities piece that Naz and Comfort mentioned, but also all our other work on Africa on our on our website. Thank you so much for this conversation. And we'll look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hold your fire a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Well, Richard, I think uh, really a tremendous conversation with Comfort, and she managed in a short period of time both to cover important thematic issues and I think really institutional uh, challenges in the region, emphasizing the importance of studying and understanding specific and particular uh, conflicts and contexts across the continent. Uh, And we'll again encourage our listeners to look at that uh, African Union priorities briefing, which covers a lot of what Comfort said and talks about it in the context of the AU's priorities in 2021. Uh, And I'll look forward to more discussion on some of the specific issues that Comfort highlighted. With that, uh, I will ask our listeners to leave us a review or a rating on whatever platform they listen to podcasts. And also thanks so much to the Crisis Group team, which does a tremendous job of putting these podcasts together. Have a good week, everyone. Hold your fire. A podcast by the International Crisis Group. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.